You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Exercise is like a vacuum cleaner for ageing tissue and renews your tissue. And you, know, you can look at a biopsy of muscle and your muscle's frail and old. And after you've done weight training, your muscle is indistinguishable from a young person's muscle. Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto. This episode was recorded on Boonwurrung country. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders past and present. We pay respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Hello, welcome. Oh, it's so, so wonderful to be here back at Montalto. My name is Sally Warhaft and now to today's menu. Norman Swan. Wow. Uh, (laughs) A journalist and physician, uh, of course. Uh, In paediatrics, he trained. He graduated in medicine at the University of Aberdeen in 1976 and became... When I was 12. When he was 12, (laughs) yeah. One of Australia's first and still only medical journalists... Um, they're very, very few and far between in the world and particularly in Australia. He's worked, of course, on radio, television, podcast now for more than 30 years. He's done some really interesting things that perhaps some of you don't know, like being the boss of RN for some years, um, a few decades back, and recruited talent, including Philip Adams, Geraldine Doog. Um, So these are some of the other things we have to be grateful to Norman for, as well as some of us are probably alive, thanks to him, uh, given what's occurred over the last couple of years. You know him, of course, from uh, Corona Corona Cast 7.30 report, now, best-selling author, because he didn't have enough to do in the lockdowns, um, his first book published last year, So You Think You Know What's Good For You, and this year, So You Want to Live Younger, Longer. Um, they make a delightful double edition. Buy them both. You'll live forever. And, uh, money, money back guarantee. If you die, <laughs> I'll give you money back. Uh, get them from uh, courtesy of the bookseller for today, Antipodes uh, from Sorrento. Norman Swan, everybody. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> Let's start with lunch, Norman. Wasn't it yummy? It was, it was a great lunch, yeah. And um, the vegetables picked freshly from the market garden here yeah. at, at Montalto. I wanted to talk about the whipped butter and the deep fried croquettes and how long we all have to live. Well, we just forget about those. But um, <laughs> well, there's a, as you'll discover in this one, there's not much evidence that, and this is the good news in the Great. book, that full fat dairy does you any harm. Um, yeah. That's great. There wasn't any on our plates today, but move on. Well, there was the butter, you know. uh, Oh, yes. So the interesting thing is there that if you were to eat a pile of saturated fat, that would be really bad for you. But there's something about when it's in natural food like dairy, that there are substances in it that seem to counteract the the effect of the saturated fat. So it's neutral. It doesn't do any harm, doesn't do any good. But um, full fat dairy, go for it. Fantastic. That's thank you very much. That's good because that's what I'm serving. Yes. Coffee? Yeah. Yeah. No well, problem. It's black. Yeah. yeah. Great. Caffeine's great. good. <laughs> um, thank you. We 
we were supposed to meet here last year, and to any of you who were booked for that event, thanks for your patience. Um, and I, I remember my heartbreak when it was cancelled, along with you know life itself. Really, I wonder just how you're feeling now um, after that two years, and and here we are. Um, well, I just I think that. Um so a couple of things, and conflicted. Everybody's fed up with it. You know, we want it all to be over, and unfortunately it's not. And there's probably another variant lurking in the wings, and hopefully it won't be too bad, and we're all pretty well vaccinated now, although we haven't had the third and fourth doses at the rate we should have. So I, just, I still feel a bit that we're, we're a bit vulnerable. We haven't learned the lessons. I get a bit angry at politicians because we've got this moment to actually regulate indoor air. This is pretty good. We've got doors open, good circulation in here. But we're, 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 we've got much more, far more regulations about outdoor air than we do about indoor air. So we're, we, we breathe in dirty indoor air, even in quite sophisticated buildings. Victoria is doing more than other states, but still not enough. We've got this lull, and this is not the last pandemic. Already we're in a second pandemic, which is monkeypox. And we're living in a time where, the, unfortunately, where we're knocking down forests, we're moving into natural environments which we weren't meant to be, exposed to animals and their viruses that we weren't exposed to. We are actually going to see more, and we could be proofing ourselves. There will be, for it to be a pandemic, it needs to be a respiratory virus, and we're not doing quite enough. Mm. I like it when you get angry with politicians. Um, one of the moments when I really remember you doing that was, I, I can't remember what week um, it was, but it was the 2020, the week of the Victorian... The third week in March. The Victorian Grand... It was the third week in March, the week of the Grand Prix. The week of the Grand Prix and the, the debate about whether the then Prime Minister should go to the football up in Sydney. What was it like... Um, your levels of both frustration and a sense of responsibility of what you were having to tang untangle so rapidly becoming the voice of, of information. It was very uncomfortable because it's not a traditional job of a journalist. And, um, but I was kind of ready for the pandemic because I'd done a series on pandemics for Channel 4 UK in the early 90s. I'd always been interested in population health when I was a medical student. And, you know, and if you do paediatrics, which is what I did, you're interested in infectious disease because kids get infectious diseases. And I'd covered AIDS, <coughs> HIV AIDS, when it started. And so I'd always been interested in this. And I kind of knew what was going to happen next because the pattern was set. People said, well, how do you know what's going to happen next? I said, well, you just turn the page of the textbook. Mm. And um, it was just sadly predictable. And I'd kind of avoid, we, we walked into it with Coronacast. We didn't know what, we didn't know the impact we were having. And we didn't really want to know the impact we were having because you just got to hunker down and do the job. And, and I'd, I'd avoided overt comment until that week. But that week, there was a basketball match, 14,000 people in Western Australia, Grand Prix here, 250,000 people. Almost certainly some of the drivers from Monza had mm. COVID. And, um, and then this ridiculous rugby league match that the Prime Minister was proud to be going to um, and tripled down on it that he, was, that he was going to. At the same time as the public were being told, well, you've got to socially distance, you know, and you've got to wash your oranges when you buy them from Woolies and so on, which is just ridiculous. And, um, 
And then people lost trust with this. And, and I was on air, I think it was with Jacinta Parsons on, a thir- on the thir- Wednesday or Thursday of that week. And I, I, th- I think she deliberately needled me. And, um, and I just went. Mm. And, um, and, and, I, and I, just, I just think there were a lot of people in Victoria who didn't want that to happen. And um, I, don't, I don't see the, the blame or the credit for it, but there certainly started a debate which continued. And the, the, the federal government was in a mess. Mm. Um, and what you need in a pandemic is trust. And they were very badly advised. The, the scientists who were advising them were very badly advised, very different at state level from, from federal level, very poorly served by the federal government. The best thing the federal government did was shut the borders in late January. That saved a lot of trouble with China, but we should have done it elsewhere and that would have really protected that, that protected us well but um, it took them a long time to come to the party luckily they did because there was a tendency a tra- uh, there was a belief in the federal government that they should follow the British and Boris wasn't going to lock down he wasn't having a testing regime 45,000 British people died in the first six months of the pandemic in the hope that they'd get to some kind of herd immunity well, by the end of six months with 45,000 deaths, only 6% of people had antibodies to COVID. Mm. It, was like the war, it was like the Somme, an English public schoolboy sending you over the fence. Luckily, we didn't do that. Mm. But it was a weird time, and, um, and making the call was very uncomfortable. And, um, and it, it gave me the undying enmity of the Prime Minister's office. So they started briefing News Limited against me. You know, I remember one morning I woke up on a Saturday and above the fold on the front page of the Weekend Australian was a headline which said I was corrupt. Well, badge of honour from that particular office at that particular time, I'd say, Norman. Mm. Mm? Well, you can say that. <laughs> um, public health, one of the points you make in the, in the book um, is it's actually got much more to do with the, the Department of Treasury and Finance and even education than it does about a Department of Health, which you point out should be actually called a Department of Illness. Yeah, or a Department of Hospitals. Yeah, or the Department of Hospitals. Um, how, how, how did we go, do you think, from what you knew of our public health system before and what you're seeing now, before we get into a conversation of us all living longer, because these departments... Well, it is related. It's hugely related, yeah. Um, I think we did much better at state level than we did at, uh, at national level, as I said before, uh, with varying things. I mean, Victoria struggled because in 2009, um, they had so depleted their public health resources that during the 2009 flu pandemic, they ran up the white flag in Victoria because they didn't have the resources. Dan Andrews was the health minister. And the public health resources were not increased after that. So you had a depleted public health resource in this state, which took a while to actually build back up again. And you know, with the fantastic leadership of Brett Sutton and others. Um, <coughs> but, you know, this... Victoria has led the way traditionally on <coughs> non-health, non-traditional, what's it, non-traditional, in that sort of broad-based approach to health. <coughs> There's the community health centre movement here, which is not doctor-led, which is providing multidisciplinary care, <coughs> which is getting 
<coughs> you okay? You want a rat test? I've got one in the car. Oh, good. A, a rat, I mean, a, a rat. rat. That's right. We don't need the redundant test at the end, do we? <coughs> like the HIV virus. Yes. Um, so Victoria's been really good at that. And, in, and you know, at its core, Victoria's actually got, got that as part of its DNA, and, uh, which is really good compared to other states, which I think have lagged. Queensland's pretty good. So I think that we, we tend to focus on concrete and flashing lights and wires and things that go ping um, in terms of what helps us when we're sick or when we want to stay young longer. But what I talk about in the book, which is also true of the pandemic, is it's the other stuff that goes with it. Mm. And you could just see it in Sydney when it, the virus spread through the southwestern suburbs and it spread through the northern and nor northwestern corridor in Sydney. Every pandemic in history, every pandemic in history, has widened the gap between those who have and those who have not. Mm. Um, if you look at what we did in March, April, February, March, April, 2020, it reads like Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. Yeah. And if you look at, say, Florence, what, what did they do in Florence with the plague, which came in surges, like COVID does, and every time there was a surge, don't want to depress this audience too much, plague lasted for 300 years. Mm -hmm. um, when it came in surges, they closed the gates, they closed, they stopped people coming, they closed the borders, they nailed the poor in their homes. Remember they did that in Wuhan? Yep. You saw people being nailed in their apartments. And, uh, and the disadvantage come off worst. And what we did as a society, because we're a much fairer communitarian society, is that we actually spent money helping people with JobKeeper um, and, and other supports to keep people in employment. We did the right thing and we got beyond ideology. The shame is that we've kind of gone back to that, but we, we went beyond ideology. And that made a huge difference to Australians. America did very badly in the 1918 pandemic. And they do, do badly in pandemics because of who the society in which they find themselves. Mm. Liberty. Well, the, the, it's the rule of the individual, the role of the individual. So it's a great place if you're an entrepreneur and you want to build up a big business and you want to go for it. America is a great place for that. Um, but it's not a great place when you need community action where individuals need to sacrifice for the common good. Every Victorian sacrificed themselves, their families and so on, their psychological well-being for the common good. They knew what they were doing and did it incredibly well. Yes, some people rebelled towards the end and why wouldn't you because it was so stressful for so many people. But that sense is not strong in the United States. There are still, you, know, you, you, you get this, we, are, we were always going to be a good vaccination nation because mm -hmm. we've been, you know, 95% of parents get their kids vaccinated. We're a good vaccination. Two or 3% of the public are anti-vaxxers, mm -hmm. only two or 3%. And um, then there's a group who are a bit hesitant for quite good reasons. They just need those reasons answered. But in America, it's who you vote for determines whether you get vaccinated. Well, we're a very obedient nation to... Um, do you feel like it aged you? I feel like it aged me. I mean, I'm Melbourne, so that's... And, and lots of friends say the same thing. That the, and, and the key sort of factor for me with that um, was stress. I mean, yeah. it was just this in my bones and it compounded by 
Trump for me too, very much in 2020. I felt like I was going to bed reading the Washington Post and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night well, to your boy doing his magnificent interview. It was like sort of peak surreal. Yeah. Uh, and then waking up to you in the morning with Corona cast and um, tell us about that stress and what it does to you. So two things from that. One is we cause pandemics, human beings cause pandemics and politics cause pandemics. And I just want to make that point because it is relevant to the books as well, which is that if this virus had appeared 10 years beforehand, I don't think it would have turned into the pandemic it did. As a counterfactual, we'll never know. But Obama was in power in the United States. Xi Jinping was not, did not have the power he's got today. So, so the Chinese would have behaved in a different way. The Chinese local epidemiologists have sorted this out. They knew which part of the wet market it came from. They could see the cases fanning out. They, they knew just, in November, didn't they? Yeah, well, it, early December, mid-December, yeah. they sequenced the virus, and a brave Chinese scientist sent the sequence to Eddie Holmes at the University of Sydney, and Eddie Holmes distributed it to the world. Um, and, and it was a world of cooperation in 10 years ago. Not ideal, but it burst upon a world of fragile authoritarian men. Trump, Duterte, Putin, Orban, uh, Bolsonaro. Modi, Johnson. It, well, and Johnson, well, Johnson's more in the stupid side of things, you know, <laughs> um, who just believe, you know, he had no sense of anything and was taking the wrong advice. Although today he's looking like he might have been a picnic, but I digress. Well, but that's, yeah. another, that's another matter. <laughs> yeah. now, this, but the other point that you make is, a very, is one that I make in both books, and it is related to ageing fast and ageing slow. And you tend, and so I was in a, I was in, you talked about stress. Now the stress you're talking about is chronic erosive stress. That's it. I, I, I don't know what's happening in the world out there. I don't know where the virus is. I don't know how it's evolving. I don't know whether there's going to be a vaccine or a treatment or not. Is this lockdown going to go on forever? Or, you know, does life ever go back to any kind of normal? There were all so many unknowns which made you feel out of control. And psychologists, and for the psychologists, and those of you who've done psychology, this is where I fail, you know, psychology 101, but the psychologists call it locus of control. And locus of control, crudely, is about where, where do I feel my life or my work is being controlled? Do I have agency? Do I, have I got freedom to make decisions? Or am I pressed, I can't make decisions that I know I need to make? And if it's here, that's good. If it's over there, you experience it as chronic stress. And everybody experienced chronic stress. I was lucky that I was in a job where I knew what was going on. Um, and I was able to express, I was, I, I was in a creative role which, and a journalistic role which mm. was reporting on it. And it gave me a sense of more agency. So I was, I was like, about what I've done throughout my broadcasting career is trying to transmit that agency to listeners or viewers so that you've got the information to make the thing. Mm -hmm. So I, coming back to books, I hate health books. One of the reasons I wrote the first book is I hate health books because health books usually, they're often written by men and they wag their finger at you and say, what a complete idiot you've been all your life because you haven't been eating goji berries. And if only you were to eat goji berries, your life would be transformed. Then the rest of the book is goji berry recipes. And... What I wanted to do was, and then there's all sorts of bullshit words used in health books, like resilience, mm. like wellness, mm. complete bullshit words. We can come back to why I think that in a minute. And so what, coming back to chronic st stress for a moment, 
we forget at our peril that the brain runs everything. We tend to resist that notion because if the doctor says to you, oh, I know you've got chronic pain, but you, know, you look a bit depressed to me, we think, that bastard, he thinks it's all in my head. Mm. But in fact, your brain monitors your environment. So it monitors your relationships, it monitors your housing, it monitors the air, um, monitors the wider environment. And all the brain knows is to turn that into physical messages to the rest of your body. Now, when the locus of control moves over here, you've got a bad boss, you're in a lousy job, you're a single mother with three kids on a pension, the locus of control is over here. In a pandemic, the locus of control is over there with this bloody virus that you haven't got a clue about. And then these premiers and um, prime ministers and their chief health officers, and you hope that they're making the right decisions for you. And you were lucky in Victoria that you had someone like Brett there for you. Um, is is that the locus of control? So, the, so the, your body gets alerted. So it's it's not like the alert you get when you go on the you know the ride of death at the fun park. This is chronically your body, your brain chronically alerts the rest of your body. So it alerts your immune system, it alerts your hormones, it alerts your blood, your cardiovascular system. So your blood pressure goes up, your cardiovascular system goes on the alert. And your cardiovascular, sorry, your, heart, your immune system goes on the alert. And there's three levels to your immune system. There, the first level is just a broad-based response which creates inflammation in your body. That's, the, that's kind of the blunderbuss approach to any invader. So it gets ready for that. And that increases inflammation in your body. And inflammation pre speeds up the aging of your tissues. So it's a good thing if you're alerted, but it's only going to last an hour or two because you're ready for some saber-toothed tiger or something mm -hmm. like that. But if it lasts for weeks and months... Or a year or two. Or two then it does mm. speed up the aging process. Mm. Oxidative stress, the damage that oxygen does to your body because your metabolism goes up and the inflammation goes up. So, it, um, so people who feel that they might have aged probably do. Whether I'm not so sure it's irreversible, though. Well, that's my next very important <laughs> question because I... I was locked up for two years alone with my five-year-old twins, so I, 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 um, I, I really was rather... It doesn't bear thinking about it. It doesn't bear thinking. I look, I look back on it now in some sort of a fog, but what can I do? What, what could, can somebody who feels like they've been through an elongated trauma do to wind back those years, Norman? Because I was an older mother to start with, and I want to live forever for my children. But you don't want to live forever in I want to live shape. forever really young so I can yeah. chase them and throw them in the air. And Okay. Let me start broad because everybody wants simple solutions. I start the second book, You Want to Live Longer Longer, with a quote from H.L. Mencken, the American humorist. And I'm going to grossly paraphrase it. You get the full quote in the book. It is that he said, for every complicated problem, there's a clear and simple solution, which is always wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so let me start broad, because the, the broad stuff is important, and we forget that, forget that's important. So we're already living younger, longer. It's already happening. An 80-year-old today has the same chances of dying in the next 12 months as a 60-year-old did 50 years ago. Life expectancy keeps on going up. So I need to define some terms. I will get to your, I will give you your prescription in a minute, but I need to define some terms. 
There's two terms here, really. One is life expectancy and one is lifespan. Everybody in this room is interested in lifespan. How long am I going to live? And there's not a single person in this room who wants to live a long time in misery, dependent on others. We all want to live well, you know, and then hopefully drop off the perch at, at the end. And that's, that's right. So why are we living longer? So let me take life, life expectancy. Now, life expectancy is not to be confused with lifespan. Life expectancy is an average. And as an average, it hides lots of things. So, for example, a baby born today, a baby girl born today, has a life expectancy of 83. Well, that's not true. No. Because it's based on today's medical technology, what we know about today. But if that baby's born in Armadale or Turak, that baby's going to live to 100. But if that baby's born in the back of beyond in an Aboriginal community, they're not. And so, so it is with the life expectancy gap between First Nations peoples and non-Indigenous. We say it's 11 years. It is 11 years on average. But in fact, if you take the longest lived area of Australia and the shortest lived is 45 years. 45 years. That's what happens when you strip away these <coughs> averages. Now, we tend to think, so life expectancy has gone up. In the 19th century in Australia, you're lucky to live 45 or 50. That was a, that was a good life. Um, but life expectancy went up three months a year, 19th century, 20th century. And we tend to think that there's a life expectancy gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians because if you're an Aboriginal or a Torres Strait Islander and you are 65, you're not going to get to 85 or you've got less chance of getting to 85 than somebody who's non-Indigenous. That is not, that's true. But it's not the reason for the life expectancy gap, because it sounds harsh to say it. If you're 65 and you still get to 83 rather than 85, that doesn't affect the life expectancy no. average that much. And to illustrate what's... It's large numbers of years of life gained and lost. So, for example, I talk in the book about the Glasgow effect. So the west of Scotland had a significant life expectancy gap from the rest of Britain, high coronary heart disease rates, and the life expectancy gap in the city that I grew up in when I was growing up was 25 years. Now it's down to 13, again an average. And people say, well, why is there this life expectancy gap in Glasgow? And people say, well, it's fried Mars bars. Um, well, I've never seen a fried Mars bar, but I've seen fried haggis, fried black pudding, fried white pudding. Um, and you know, it was a terrible diet. But actually, when you examine the diet of Glaswegians, it's actually not that different from people uh, corrected statistically correct in Liverpool, Edinburgh, Manchester. The divergence started in the 60s, and this gives you an idea of how the brain really does run everything in the general environment. Glasgow had the worst slums in Western Europe, so a place called the Gorbals, which is where my grandparents went when they arrived from the Ukraine in, uh, the, late, in the early 20th century. And they knocked down those slums in the 60s, and they moved people to housing, government housing schemes on the periphery of the city. Now, what happened, and that's when it started to happen, the, 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 the gap started to happen in, in Scotland, in Glasgow in particular. And what happened was, the bad those, those, those slums were, people knew each other. Mm. They supported each other. The kids played with each other. And they dislocated communities, sent them to places with poor transport links. They couldn't walk to work. The Gorbals was just across the River Clyde from the CBD. Um, there was definitely a pub, shop, and so on. And people started dying of despair. 
And the reason life expectancy gaps appear is that young and middle-aged people die. So the reason there's a you know so so essentially in Aboriginal communities and in Glasgow in those days, you didn't get the luxury of living to an old age. You died young and lost large numbers of years of life. Now the flip is true as well. So the reason life expectancy went up in the 19th century was that women survived childbirth. That increased life expectancy, the average, because lots of years of life gained. Babies survived childbirth. Babies survived to young adulthood because of immunization. But the statistic that did not change from 1890 to 1950 were your chances, were what, how, long, how much longer you were going to live when you were 50 years old. And what's changed since World War II is that your chances of living a long, much longer time, it's not life expectancy at birth, it's life expectancy at 50. We're doing as well as we can at birth, so we're getting a lot of people to 50. Now, what's happening is we've done really well since World War II in survival of people from 50. Now it's the survival of people at 75 because you've just got this wave of people getting through to older ages. So why is that the case? Um, and is an 80-year-old truly younger? Well, yes, they are, but, there's other, but the reasons are interesting. So people started completing high school after World War II. They started going to university, further education and so on. The longer you go on in education, the longer you live, um, the later you get dementia, if indeed you get dementia at all, the later you get coronary heart disease and cancer. Education is a really potent cause of living younger, longer. And it comes back to this control thing, this locus of control. When you're educated, you've got more agency over your life. You've got more choices. You're likely to live in a part of town where, there's, where there isn't much air particulates. I mean, there are low air particulates in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, high particulates in the western suburbs and in that northwestern corridor. But they are pro-aging. So when you, those air particulates increase aging. So where you live, the choices you've got about where you live, the chronic stress you're under through poverty and so on, less when you're educated, all these things flow from that. Remembering the brain controls everything. And we stop smoking as well. So smoking is really pro-aging. We tend to think of smoking being bad for our heart, our lungs, risk of cancer and so on. And so on. But in fact, Smoking gets into every cell in your body and speeds up the aging process. It activates your immune system. It increases the internal rusting in your body, oxidative stress. So when you stop smoking, then all that tends to settle down and it is reversible. And for the first time in human history, what doctors do matters. Not what doctors do in uh, Peter Mac or Royal Melbourne. Um, that's important for lifespan. So if you've got a blocked coronary artery that might shorten your life and they open it up, that's good for lifespan. But they don't have much impact on life expectancy. But it's what GPs do that make a difference. So they're detecting high blood pressure, high cholesterol and treating that. And that actually slows down aging as well. And people are living better. Mm. So the 80 year old today is not entirely disability free. You might have a couple of stents, you might have had a new hip or a new knee. Um, but you're in pretty good shape. Mm. So, I still haven't answered your question, though. Hmm. There's so, so but, many more I want to ask you now. But, but there's, well, let me just, let me just say, how, how, do you, how do you get there? So, one of the things I talk about in the book is what you can do in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So, for this room, I really need to talk about what you can do in your 20s, and then you can, you can pass it on to older people later. But the... Um, I say in the book, it would be a tragedy if you were destined to live to 100 because of good living, not genes, but good living. Um, 
And then something else clobbered you, which you could have avoided. Yeah. So you've got to not, you've got to remember the basics. You know, from age of 25, you're a woman, get cervical cancer screening, get breast cancer screening. What I can't understand is 60% of Victorians would rather die, mm. die, than put the poo on the piece of paper and send it in for testing. Six out of 10 Victorians. In fact, six out of 10 Australians. It's that high, is it? Yeah. And, you know, either die or end up with a colostomy and really toxic chemotherapy. Mm. I don't get it. I honestly, is, that, is, is poo so revolting that you'd rather die than put the poo on the piece of paper? So get that done. So then, so then it's really about other stuff. And I talk about the second longest lived people in the world. So the second longest lived people in the world are elderly Greek Australians living in Melbourne. It's probably true of elderly Greek Australians living anywhere in Australia, but they've been studied in Melbourne mm. by a researcher called Tanya Thodis at Deakin and uh, Catherine Itziopoulos, who was at Deakin and is now Pro Vice Chancellor at um, the Murdoch or Curtin University, I can't remember which, in Victoria. So as soon as you say that, that elderly Greek Australians are the longest lived, second longest lived people in the world, people say, ah, oh, I know what it is. It's the Mediterranean diet. And, and it is. Well, you've got to be careful about the Mediterranean diet. So the, the Mediterranean is a very complex place. You know, you've got Morocco, you've got Tunisia, you've got Algeria, you've got Egypt, you've got Israel. You've got, I mean, if any, you know, very few people here have been to Italy recently. You know, you, maybe you're lucky, I have gone to Italy, but you know, if you go to Italy, you know, you stuff your face with prosciutto, red meat. It's not a healthy Mediterranean diet in Italy. The Mediterranean diet that's associated with health, well-being, and living younger, longer is the diet of the Greek islands, particularly Crete. But the island is quite similar throughout the Greek islands. And you, you, you all know the story, not much red meat, uh, eating a lot of fish, legume, you know, getting your protein from legumes, a big variety of colored vegetables like you had on your plates today, maybe a little bit of red wine, plenty of extra virgin olive oil. Now, so that's true. And if, if that's what you ate in its raw state, it, you'd, rather than buying processed food, it's pretty good for you. But in fact, the secret is in cooking. It's the cuisine that counts. Because when you cook, magic happens in the pot. Any chef will tell you. Well, let's get the executive chef out and have a talk, chat. It's so great. We don't have to eat it raw. It's actually not as good for you. That's right. It's that when a chef is inventing new dishes, they know what's going to happen when they add an egg or milk or cream or a herb because they know the chemical reaction in the pot. That's how they design new menus and recipes and make it predictable. So if, when you say put extra virgin, so let's say I take a tomato, and this is laboratory research that's been done. If you eat a raw tomato, it's pretty good for you rather than eating processed food. If you chop that tomato really finely, even better, it starts to release some pretty active compounds. Pour extra virgin olive oil on it and cook it under a grill it explodes with what I call in the book bioactive compounds. People call them antioxidants. It actually cheapens them to call them bioantioxidants. Yes, they slow down internal rusting, but they actually help your cells communicate within the cells and with each other, and it changes your microbiome to a much more youthful state. So then when you put extra virgin olive oil in the pot, you chop up onions, which have got their own range of chemicals, garlic, carrots, tomato, the sofrito mix, that cooks up bioactive, youthful-making compounds that you could never buy in the pharmacy. Mm. And then the other thing that 
um, older Greek Australians do is that they grow their own, they've got their own garden, little garden. They've got, you know, it's Melbourne. So they've either got an, an allotment or in their backyard. Sweeping generalization, but they're, so they're getting a bit of exercise, but it's fresh. Freshness is much more important than organic because whatever's there is straight in the pot. But don't go shopping for green vegetables with a Greek nonna because it's a nightmare, because they're so particular about what they're buying. Or indeed, a Vietnamese or Australian grandmother. If you go to Cabramatta in Sydney, which is like little Vietnam, I don't know, do not know why you'd be a Vietnamese greengrocer. So particular are they? And interestingly, the Vietnamese in Vietnam do live disproportionately longer than you would expect mm. for their, for their mm. per capita income. So they cook, and they cook at a moderate heat. And if you burn stuff on the barbecue, so you notice, even though that was flame-cooked chicken, it wasn't burnt. I felt like they'd read your book, actually, yeah. but then they kind of just put in a few extras like the whipped butter. Um, but Caramelisation mm. um, is pro-aging. Mm. The brown stuff that we all love at barbecues mm. is pro-aging. They eat with family and friends. Mm. Remember, the brain runs everything. So your mm. so social environment, doing something like this, it's not just about... It, almost everything that you do, we tend to have a very narrow view of it. We tend to think of exercise being good just for our heart, maybe preventing cancer. So exercise is like a vacuum cleaner for aging tissue and renews your tissue. And you, know, you can look at a biopsy of muscle and your muscle's frail and old. And after you've done weight training, your muscle is indistinguishable from a young person's muscle, for example. So you eat with family and friends. So you've got people around you. And that's not just about intellectual stimulation and cognitive capacity. It's about reducing that chronic stress and loneliness. Because what happens with some people is that they're getting older, they might lose a partner, live alone, and you think, I can't be bothered cooking for myself tonight, I'll have a cheese sandwich. And when your diet becomes more monotonous, your microbiome becomes more monotonous and stops producing the substances that slow down inflammation, slow down oxidative stress. It all works together. And here's the final thing about elderly Greek Australians. They belong to the Greek Orthodox Church. The Greek Orthodox Church has about 100 fast days a year. But these aren't Michael Mosley fasts. They are days where you don't eat animal protein. So they're kind of vegan fasts. And uh, Luigi Fontana in the University of Sydney, whose research Michael Mosley based his early books on, calls it intermittent frugality. He's not a big believer in the 5-2 kind of diet. He calls it intermittent frugality. And kind of that's the package, which we could all do. I married a Greek. <laughs> you don't know, his parents. He's really badly. And he's, but his parents, they're going to live forever. I just, they're going to haunt me forever. <laughs> and they've got every single thing that you say. Uh, I'm... I'm now living off the sofrito so I've, I've mix. Tri I've triggered you clearly. Yeah, Sorry about everything that. Everything about you triggers me. I, Sorry. I hate that word. It's like one of the words you hate, but, um, but it, it does. Um, now, and, that, and that's before we get on to the individual things that you might take. You mentioned um, before um, we got onto the list of things in that there's a you know, section for every age of things you can do. In every section... Starting in your 20s, you say, get a good GP that you can trust. 
uh, in your 20s, in your 40s, you know, find the GP that is going to be all over everything you need with a laser-like focus. Um, the, that crucial relationship, um, that, that has broken down yes. in this country. It, uh, it's in absolute crisis. Tell us what you know of that and, and, and how, we can, how we can fix it. We have to get rid of Medicare. Um, not universal health care. So, so the core principle is that you get the health care, that you get the best health care, according to the best evidence, irrespective of how much money you have. That's the core principle. And Medicare no longer does that. May never really have done that. It was always a compromise. So you can call what comes next Medicare for political reasons. Uh, and we're at a phase where it's, it's, it's like many things. You know, Menachem Begin was the person who could make peace with Sadat. The, the, the Israeli Labour Party could never have made peace with mm. Sadat. It was, it was kind of because belligerence was owned by Likud, the right mm. wing in Israel. Um, you know, Reagan, uh, Nixon could weapons. have made peace yeah. with China and yeah. so on. And, and it's only the Labour Party that can reform Medicare. So we're at a moment in time where if they've got guts, they, they can do it simply because they own it. It's their shtick. Um, we've got to change the way we pay for healthcare because GPs are on this treadmill of 15-minute consultations. And, um, and we've got this pernicious thing called telehealth, which I think is pernicious. Um, John Emery at Melbourne University, um, professor of general practice in cancer, reckons that late-stage diagnosis of cancer is partly due to telehealth. Because mm. when you go and see a good GP, at the end of the consultation, the good GP will say, you know, is there anything else? Are you, or you're not looking that great, was there something else? One in three people who go and see their GP are not there for the reason they said they're there. They're there because, and they're hoping the GP will ask them about it because they're kind of scared to bring mm. it up. Or they're bringing it up with their handle on the door to leave and then Correct. the doctors, yeah, everything's got the running next patient. behind. I know. Yeah. Um, so GPs are not getting paid enough and we don't remunerate them for continu continuity of care. So a, lar a much larger part of their income should be salary-based. So that they, and then nobody in, in primary healthcare, I mean healthcare in the community, is working to what technically is called top of scope. So if you're trained as a registered nurse or you're trained as a doctor or a GP, as a registered nurse, there's so much more that you can do that you're never asked to do. Particularly if you're trained as a nurse practitioner. GP should not be looking in children's ears or throats. They shouldn't be taking blood pressure. They should be, they're highly trained. They should be there Doing, the, doing difficult diagnostic work. Somebody's got complications. The path forward is not straight. I need to spend a fair bit of time with you to talk this through, whether it be mental health or a, physical, a more physical problem. And they're not paid to do that. They're not paid to work in teams. And we've got to radically change that so they get a decent income. The hard thing about becoming an orthopedic surgeon is getting into orthopedic surgery training. You know, to become a knee surgeon is not that hard. You know, you, yeah, long nights, it's, you know, it's physically hard work, but it's not that hard. Um, and, but it's, it's tough being a GP. Mm -hmm. And so the kids are coming out and looking at it and thinking, I've got a debt to pay off. Am I going to go for the lousy pay in general practice or am I going to go for a higher paying specialty? And they're going for higher paying specialties. We've got to sort that out. And then when you do go to a good GP at the moment, it's hard to see that one person on every time you go. Mm. So the organisation of general practice has got to be different. 
Um, we're going to be able to take some questions shortly. If you'd like to ask Norman a question, um, you can put your hand up and a microphone will be put in it. And while you're thinking of doing that, um, Ida Butchrose described you as a, a national treasure. It cost me a fortune for it to say Did that. it? <laughs> uh, the Batuta... What is it? Batuta Advocate? Gosh, I'm tongue-tied, you see. It's a winery for you, isn't it? Uh, called you... What do they call you? The nation's daddy? Yeah, at least they didn't call me the nation's that's granddaddy. Just, that's weird, isn't it? Um, but how, what's it been sort of like for you to be the sort of the face of all this? It was a huge surge of fame. So don't give me some clichéd answer that, you know, I can't stand it. What's it been like? I've got to watch how I behave. Yes. Um, so pe- people, you know, people might come to you, but they notice you. So are you wearing a mask? Yes. Are you being polite? Um, you know, you can't lose your temper or be irritated. Um, so you, you're, I'm all, you've got to be on your best behaviour all the time. I'm, I'm a nice person, so it's not too bad. But, um, so that, that, that scrutiny was interesting. So it's not so much people coming up to you, but realising that people are seeing you in an, in an environment and noticing. And that was... Um, so that's a little, a little bit onerous. Um, but it, look... Uh, you can't pretend that it's not nice to be recognised for what, you know for what you've been doing, but you know I get I get unfair credit for Chronicast. I mean, Chronicast is really an amazing team effort. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Ockenden, who's our producer, um, based in Sydney, he's a, like a podcast whisperer. He just knows how to do podcasts, and he's, he's just in, in him. And he lived in Sydney, but he comes from Tasmania. And then one day in March, he walked into the office and he said, "I'm off." And he packed his car off and he was driving to Tasmania and that's where he's been ever since. Wow, yeah. And then Tegan's in Brisbane and Tegan was really critical to the success of it and people really identify strongly with Tegan and giving me a hard time. And we've only been together, I think, three times in two and a half yeah. years. Um, so that's been a privilege. And, but they, they are critical to the... It's really... I've, I've seen you know, the benefit of a team exercise. But also just um, going out to a different demographic... Um, 20-year-olds recognise you. Um, I've never, you know, Radio National, God love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, not too many 20-year-olds are listening. And, of course, those, those listeners, those, they'll, they'll buy your book because they hear you on the radio, which well, means they're, yeah. they're going to live a lot longer and yeah. keep listening to you. So it's a cycle that you are... It's like a Norman Swan... I think I can almost see a conspiracy... Here, a, a little, a little well, path. That book was written for young people, the first one, because I've been giving a lot of talks to younger groups of people, the, so you think what's good for you. And they're very engaged. They're not smoking. They're not drinking. They're not taking drugs. Very engaged in their health. And I've given a lot of talks and listened to them. And so I chose the themes in that first book to suit a younger audience, knowing that an older audience would read it anyway, because it's, it, we all think that we're younger. And, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, a new audience was nice. Hmm. Um, who would like to ask a question? Please put your... Oh, perfect. No, you've got a microphone. Here we are. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm 84 and I go swimming down in the bay at 8 o'clock with the sea wolves every morning. What do you think of cold water swimming for everyone? <laughs> <laughs> so John Mitchell goes cold water swimming as well, he tells me. Um, um, so exercise is really good. 
you'll burn more calories in cold water because your body's got to generate the, the calories. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, I think most cities, I mean, certainly Sydney has that group. They're called the Young and the Beautiful, I think they call themselves in Sydney. Sorry? <laughs> no, 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 I know. Here's cold. I know, I know. Um, so all that is good. If you're a bloke, you've got to be a little bit careful. Uh, the commonest place to get a cardiac arrest is in cold water. Cold shower. That's Depends cold water. The, uh, mm. No, no, it's cold. I've never, never heard about cold showers. But, so you've just got to be a little bit ginger you know, and not too brave. And this, it's the sudden plunge that um, you've just got to be a little bit careful about. But it's mostly in blokes. But if, if, it's the, if the difference is no exercise, it's, it's a pretty good form of exercise. I was pleased and surprised to hear you um, say that pounding the pavement, walking, is fantastic. Because I'm a walker and I think I should swim. Um, but actually, that gravity is Gravity is really is important. Good. Yeah. So if you want strong bones, you need gravity. Yeah. Swimming will not necessarily... You know, um, You've, you know, dancing can do it, Zumba can do it, anything that just, just a little bit of impact makes a big difference. And the faster you walk, the better. So the more intense your exercise, now if you're just coming up from a standing start and you haven't exercised for a long time, just walking along the flat will be enough to get your heart rate up. No, no, I'm walking really fast away from my kids. <laughs> <laughs> and your in-laws, clearly. <laughs> um, yes. and things like vaping and, like, what, what's your view on regulation, I guess? Oh, vaping and uh, sugar, sugar particularly, but government regulation was the question. So government regulation has its best use when you've got market failure. So we have market failure with alcohol. Not high-end alcohol that you're eating, drinking here, but um, it, lower... We don't tax alcohol according to how much, of alcohol, how, much, how much alcohol is in the drink, is in the, uh, the um, product. And the result of that is it's cheaper in an Aboriginal community to buy cask wine than it is to buy water. So that's market failure. And if we had volumetric taxation, it actually wouldn't affect the, the price of wines in a winery like this it would affect the lower end where you're dumping, um, you're, you're dumping basically alcohol on the general community. So that's where you need regulation. Um, we, the obesity pandemic started in the 60s with the globalization of the food industry. Cheap uh, calories, high sugar, lots of fat, filling it out for cheap, cheap unhealthy calories. That's market failure causing the obesity pandemic. And therefore, you need government regulation to bring them back, back into check. So the global food industry behaves like the tobacco industry, creates doubt, you know, is it, is it really that bad for you? And, and so on and so forth. And then what you can do there is differential taxation. Rather than regulation, it's differential taxation, where it, you tax the amount of sugar or the amount of fat. Um, the retailers don't lose out of this because they still sell product. They just sell a different kind of product. The manufacturers actually don't lose in the end because they actually will shift their product to suit the uh, to get to the cheaper price and lower taxation, and that does seem to work. So government regulation needs to be where you've got market failure, and that's why you need a Medicare system of some kind, because the market will not supply 
two things, education and health. You need governments to get involved with that. They also want you know, security, policing and so on, but education and health, you need government. I mean, you're making me think of places like Kerala in India, which are um, very poor, um, but have uh, Western uh, statistics on mortality and child mortality and things like that. And it's, I mean, it's all the things that so, you're saying. So there's always been a bit of a war between the curative doctors and the preventive doctors. The yeah. curative doctors win. I mean, you just go and visit the Royal Melbourne or yeah. Frankston Hospital and so on versus what goes into general practice or prevention. Um, so we spent a fortune on that. And after World War II, the curative kind of biomedicine group said, I mean, by the way, I buy into high-tech medicine. You know, if I need it, I want it and I want it there. So it's, it's not that I've got an ideological opposition to it. But anyway, after World War II, they said, we've triumphed over tuberculosis because we've got this new antibiotic, streptomycin, and that's curing anti-tuberculosis. And the public health people said, you know, it's bullshit. If you look at the line, the decline in tuberculosis, it started in the late 19th century. And if we took away the x-axis where you, the, you, you couldn't point to the point on the graph where streptomycin was introduced because it's a straight line. There was no sudden dip when antibiotics were introduced. An Australian historian, uh, the late Professor Barry Smith at um, the ANU, said you're both wrong. His special interest was the history of tuberculosis. Mm. And he'd gone back into parishes in Europe. So what the public health people had said was, it's what we did in the late 19th century, better housing, better nutrition, sewage and so on. That's what solved the problem. And he said you're both wrong. He looked at parishes side by side in the early 19th century where they didn't know what tuberculosis was, but they had descriptive names for it, and they had good health records. And side by side, you had one parish that seemed to live longer and have less TB than the other parish, but they were indistinguishable when you looked at them. And so they looked for what was the correlation, explained what, why one parish did better than the other. Parishes that taught little girls to read and write lived longer. Mm. And let me tell you, the Taliban know this. Yes. ISIS knows this. That's why they blow up schools and kill teachers who teach little girls. Because what it, and that's why Kerala is so important. as a, a matriarchal society, and for a long, long time, they've had amongst the world's highest levels of female literacy. Because when you've got female literacy, the world changes. Mm. Income goes up. You are less dependent on religion. Families become more independent, the whole control thing. It's about control. Mm. And the last thing any religious fundamentalist wants, whether they're Jewish, Christian, or Islamic, is they, the less control of the religion over families. And that's what, you, that's what happens when young girls learn to read and write. Mm. I think we have, to, we have to wind it up, don't we? Gosh, I could just... Go on all... And I haven't spoken about goji berries. Afternoon. Well, they're a sort of waste of money, aren't they? I mean, they're not going to make you live longer, but they're going to make a pleasant little so, snack. Well, here's the 30-second yeah. thing if we're going to wind up. Forget all vitamins. None of them work in terms of living younger, longer. Unfortunately, they should. The reason... Nobody understands why they don't, but it's got something to do with complexity and what you get out of food and everything working together, like we talked about with cooking. But it's also that when you take some biological compounds like vitamins... They work differently at different doses. 
So they might do something at a low dose, but they might do something entirely different at a high dose. So vitamin C looks as if it's an antioxidant, good, at a low dose, but you wouldn't want it, I'm not saying you take it as a supplement, but if you were to. At a high dose, it looks as though it speeds up aging. Mm. Um, so the, the, you've put all over one. Then there's a whole group of other things that should work. Um, NMN booster, MAD boosters, um, resveratrol, there's a drug called metformin for diabetes and so on. There's a whole group of these. When you give them to mice, the mice live 20 or 30% longer, but they're not yet working in humans. And we won't know, of course, until enough humans get older. Well, you can, to... you can do biological studies to see whether or not you're slowing down inflammation, mm. oxidative stress and so on. They're not, they're not working for lots of different reasons. But it's because of this dose thing. We don't understand the right dose. People are going in for NAD booster infusions, massive doses. We've got no idea what that does. Mm. It's likely that the, what's needed here is tiny doses in combination, maybe once a fortnight, or take a Mediterranean diet. <laughs> so, look, these books are not... Um, they're not like little encyclopedias. They're... They're more like um, like a Julia Child's cookbook, except they've only they've only got one recipe, which is the tomato carrot onions. It's in both books that recipe. That's how important Just in case it is. You forget. Uh, but uh, you know they're, they're big, broad, important themes. Clearly, the ones that are most important to Norman, with delightful doses of memoirs, uh, memoir and funny stories and. I mean, it would be like choosing between your twins to suggest which one to get, so I'll leave that up to you. But you can buy one or both at the um, wonderful bookshop here. It's been great to meet you, Norman. I was a bit sort of triggered, you know, as I said, um, in the lead-up, just having to relive so many things um, over the past couple of years. But now I feel great. Good. I feel great that I've met you. I feel like I'm taking using... Taking years off your life. I've Excellent. taken years off my life. Um, no, put years th- on, I should say. Thank you to... again to Montalto. Thank, thank you, you all for coming and being such thank a you. wonderful uh, audience. Thank you, Wheeler Centre. And uh, most of all, thank you. Thank you so much, Norman Swan, for everything. Yeah. That was Sally Warhaft, in conversation with Norman Swan. It was recorded at Montalto on Thursday the 29th of September 2022, as part of Books and Ideas at Montalto. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.